So uh, I want you to think back to this morning uh, when you got up. So maybe you went uh, in and washed your face or you went to the kitchen and uh, got some water to make coffee, that sort of thing. So imagine if whatever you were doing this morning, you went to turn on the faucet and no water, no water at all. Imagine what that would feel like. And in 1994, when many of us went through the earthquake, that's what happened. Water was off, and uh, wasn't, you couldn't go to the valley to get water because theirs was off too. I ended up going 44 miles to Ventura uh, before I found a water vending machine that was working. And uh, I don't know how long it was before water came back on. It wasn't that long. But here's what I want you to imagine. So no water, no drinking water. <clears throat> For six months, imagine if it was six months before we were going to get water back. What would you do? Uh, just think about how that would change things. And then what about a year? What if, what if it was clear that we weren't going to have water in Simi for a year? I'll tell you what I think most of us would try to do. If we could, we'd leave, right? We'd move. Done. We can't go without water. What about three years? Imagine what our lives would look like. Imagine what our town would look like. No water, three years. No, there would be no lawns, no anything. And our living room, our, our, <clears throat> our garage, something, it would be filled with five-gallon bottles of water. And there would be water stacked outside the bathroom. Everything in our lives would have rotated around water. So uh, I'm particularly attracted to a story in Scripture that focuses on that kind of need for water. Maybe it's because of that earthquake experience. I don't know. Um, and uh, we'll come back to the water in just a minute. But let me introduce you to the story. The prophet I'm talking about lived among the people of God at a time when the people were very divided. They had uh, grown up and had centuries of understanding what was true who God was, what their values were. Then a new king and a new queen came in and began to change that. And truth was different. And whose truth are we going to believe? And uh, it was a divided nation. And a lot of people just felt like, you know what, we're just going to ignore what's happening in the nation's capital. We'll let them fight it out, figure it out, smarter people than us. We're just going to keep our heads down. Besides, you know, we got plenty of business. We got work to do here we're not going to worry about that. And they didn't talk about it maybe in church or other places because half the people would side with the king and queen and half the people would have sided with the prophets and that sort of thing. And so, uh, and so it's like, well, what are we going to do? And that's, what the, that's where the prophet uh, lived in. And basically in this, we're going to take a wait and see attitude. And the prophet was having none of it. He was not going to put up with that kind of response. Um, and so there, it came to this point where it came to a head, and there was going to be this big challenge. And everybody knew, we're going to go up to the top of the mountain, Mount Carmel, and we're going to have it out. And one side's going to win or the other. And the people uh, expected this battle royale, and they were going to see what was going to happen. And they did. But before the day was out, they, didn't, they weren't just spectators they became involved. They got engaged in the event so that, so that the outcome meant something to them. And uh, all of it had to do with water. 
So as we step into this and we take a look, here's three questions I want you to think about. Number one, where did they get the water? And number two, why did the prophet make them contribute water? And number three, what does water have to do with us? So the prophet that I'm talking about is Elijah, and you probably caught on if you're familiar with the Old Testament that this is the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And that story is that uh, the people of God had gathered on Mount Carmel, uh, and really that mountain was kind of like the mountains around us here, uh, hills, and the community could have uh, gotten up there, um, you know, known that they had to get up. And uh, there Elijah and, uh, was their pastor and a prophet. He was waiting. And the king and queen of Israel were there as well. And 450 prophets of Baal. And uh, so the king and Elijah had agreed. They said, we're going to have a contest. We are all going to sacrifice to our gods. And the prophets of Baal will sacrifice to their god. And Elijah will sacrifice to his. And whichever god uh, accepts the offering, that god, will, that god will win. That prophet or prophets will win. And the other side's prophet or prophets will be put to death immediately. Wow. High stakes, right? Uh, and so... Uh, that's what, that's what they were prepared for, and the prophets of Baal went first, and they began to pray. Pause there. Let's go back three years so we can see what, what happened that this is the setup, that this is what's going on. So if we go three years back, Elijah is in the throne room of the king, King Ahab, and he sa- he's not happy because the queen has been bringing in these prophets of Baal. And Elijah says, it will not rain again until I pray. And I am not praying until you worship Yahweh. And he walked out. Wow. He also disappeared because they were, they, with, after about six months of no rain, everyone's looking for Elijah. And uh, they want him back. And they are going to have a talking to, right, with Elijah. But for three years, no rain. And things aren't going smoothly in the capital either. So because that queen uh, has been bringing more prophets of Baal into the country, and any prophet of Yahweh she can find, she's putting to death. So there's a, an administrator in the nation, and his name is Obadiah. He's a godly man. He's hiding prophets, and uh, he's protecting a hundred prophets of Yahweh, feeding them, taking care of them. So, you know, he's trying. He's trying to do what he can. And uh, after three years, after imagine the drought that has occurred. Uh, and it's during this three-year period that we read other stories about Elijah. Remember the one where he goes to a widow and he says, would you make me a meal? And she says, look, I am making, I got enough uh, stuff here to make one falafel. And then that's it. My son and I are going to die. I mean, there is famine in the land. There is drought in the land. And so King Ahab says to Obadiah, Obadiah, you go that way, and I'll go that way, and we are going to look for any water we can find at all to water our livestock because the the animals were dying. That's how bad it is. There isn't any water anywhere. And so Obadiah goes, and as he's walking, he sees a man in the distance. He's interesting. He keeps walking. It's Elijah. And Obadiah is like, woo, 
Elijah, how good to see you. By the way, did you know I've been hiding hundreds of your brother prophets over here? And, oh, and literally the text says, Obadiah said, Elijah, is that you? And Elijah replied, it's me. Go tell the king I want to see him. And Obadiah's face falls. He's like, seriously? I mean, I'm trying to do my, I'm trying to be good here, but if I go tell the king, I know what's going to happen. You disappear. So I'm going to tell him I found you, and then he's going to come, and you're going to be gone, and he's going to kill me. And Elijah says, no, no, it's time. We're doing this. So he, he goes to the king, and he says, here's what we're going to do. And he tells him the whole Carmel thing. So here we are back at Mount Carmel, and, uh, and uh, the prophets of Baal begin to pray. And nothing happens. So they dance. And they pray louder. And Elijah says, hey, shout louder. Maybe he's asleep. And they, they start doing that. And then ultimately they begin cutting themselves and praying to Baal to, to do something to accept their sacrifice. Nothing happens. Finally, Elijah, uh, uh, he says, oh, fine, hey, my turn, my turn. And uh, so he gets ready and uh, he... Uh, sets the offering on the altar, and then he builds a trench around the altar that will hold three gallons of water, which doesn't sound like that much, but it will hold. But this is the first time anybody has ever done this. Nowhere else in Scripture does anybody ever pour water on an offering, and Elijah's going to do that. And so he, he does that, and uh, he prepares this sacrifice, and so let me read to you what happens, and remember, we're asking the question, where did they get the water? All right, so 1 Kings 18, it says this, Then Elijah called to the people, Come over here. And they all crowded around him as they repaired the altar of the Lord that had been torn down. He took 12 stones, one to represent each of the tribes of Israel, and he used the stones to rebuild the altar in the name of the Lord. Then he dug a trench around the altar, large enough to hold about three gallons. He piled wood on the altar, cut the bull into pieces, and laid the pieces on the wood. Then he said, fill four large jars with water and pour the water over the offering and the wood. What? What? That, we've never seen that before. Why are we having to do that? We don't have any water. By the way, they're on Mount Carmel. There's no lakes. There's no springs. Uh, they would, so they have, it's whatever they have on them. Little, they don't have water bottles, but they might have flasks or something. But if they have water, it's their day's supply. It's their whole family's water. And remember, it says they crowded around. I'm guessing they all began to back up. And they, like, no eye contact. Like, I'm, I'm not doing this. So, so here's what I, here, who do you think gave water? All right, it doesn't say. But this is my guess, the faithful folk, They're, which is all of you, I am sure. You're the, you're the kind that would do that. You're like, hey, we need cookies for Sunday morning. I'll make them. I'll bring them. We need people to volunteer for VBS. I'm in. That's fine. I'll do it. You know, there's a lot of people in church who are like, yep, I'll do it. We'll do it. I think they're the ones. And so somehow they found four big jars of water, and they poured it on the altar. And they're all like, whew, Okay. I don't know what Elijah's doing, but great job. High five. And uh, Elijah says, do the same thing again. What? Huh. We just gave all we had. We don't have any more water. What are you talking about? 
So guess, who do you think is the, who do you think found water the second time? I'm going to tell you, it's you guys in the back row. See, all these guys here, they're all like, they, they, he, they're like, we got to help him. He's looking at us. So they gave water the first time. But all you in the back, you're like, wow, you version, that's cool. I'm going to. But, but now you're like, we got to do this. So you, you give, and somehow you find four gallons, four, four jars of water. You pour it over it, and it covers, it's enough water to cover the altar and fill the trench again with three gallons of water and watch it suck into that dry land, uh, dirt so fast. Whew. Okay. Elijah says, now do it a third time. We're done here. We're done. We don't have any water. You have it all. Okay, not quite everybody. So you know who hasn't given water yet? The husband of the people in the back row. See, the wives, they're all like, come on, we got to do this. And he's like, I'm not giving any water. I'm keeping mine. And she's like finally kicking him, like, we got to do this. What does that mean? That means Elijah has taken them from individuals who could care less what's actually going to happen. Whoever wins, wins. This is going to be quite a show and turned them into individuals who have given, and then turned all of them into a community that has given. The community, they all began to look at each other, and they began to say, I, I've, I don't have any more. I gave the first time. What about you? And they began to talk to each other. And they're in trouble. They have gone from, we can probably make it, to if God doesn't show up, we're toast. We're done. Because he has forced them to invest themselves in what's happening. So, it's, it, it's, they, uh, so they did, as he said, and the water ran around the altar and even filled the trench. So we have enough information now to answer our f- first question. Where did they get the water? The water came for the altar came as God's people intentionally and sacrificially gave to a risky cause. God's people intentionally and sacrificially gave to a risky cause. Now I have to pause here for a moment because I know the history of our church and many of you are beginning to go, this is sounding like a capital campaign. <laughs> this is sounding like where he's going to start asking for pledges. I'm not. It's not about that at all. Um, but it is a risky thing that they're doing. And they have to be intentional about it. They have to get their water out and measure it and decide what they're going to do. And it's sacrificial. Even the first time was sacrificial. But I want to say it's risky because they have no idea if what is going to happen. They don't know God is going to come through. They don't know if he's going to come through. And if he doesn't, the queen and king, they are ready to kill Elijah. They've been ready for three years. If Elijah loses, he's dead instantly and probably a lot of the people that supported him and if they all live they're still dead because their water's gone they have give, they have they have gone all in on this so it's this risky thing that they've done they've taken a huge risk in following Elijah's direction so i think we can move on to our second question why did the prophet make them contribute water and I, I, think, I think this is the answer. Elijah required them to bring water because God's people need to regularly commit to follow God. We, God's people, need to regularly commit ourselves to following God. We've all made commitments to Jesus. Some of us in Sunday school, some of us at camp, some of us in church. Um, 
but we need to do it regularly. And I will be the first to admit, I don't like commitments. I don't know. We don't like commitments. Uh, everybody's asking us for a commitment. Organizations that call us and political parties, cellular companies, right? Streaming videos. Disney is now asking for commitments because they're competing with Netflix and all of that. Everybody wants us to make a commitment. We don't like commitment. So we like words like this, no credit card required, right? No commitment necessary. Cancel at any time. Music to our ears. Uh, and if we ever do make a commitment, we forget about it pretty quickly. So um, Planet Fitness, probably all of them, but, uh, you know, 24-hour and all the others. But the average Planet Fitness uh, that you could go to has equipment and resources for about 300 people. You could get 300 people into a Planet Fitness. Do you know what the average number of members of a local Planet Fitness is? 6,500. Which means a lot of people aren't coming. That's that. In fact, they market to people that they hope don't come. Uh, and if they all came, they couldn't accommodate us all. But what do they know? They, oh, people make a commitment in January when, you know, they ate too much in December, but then they forget about it. So it is important to make these commitments regularly. Um, and I want to be clear about something. God didn't need the people's water. This was the only time any prophet ever asked for water. I'm, I'm guessing God was like, what is Elijah doing? Did we, is that... Did we write that in the rules? That, uh, no, he doesn't need their water. They need to give their water. They needed to be a part of what was going on. And it turns out that commitment uh, has a lot of good results, and we'll take a look at that in a minute. But I want to say that Elijah required the people of God to commit before asking God to do anything. See, it was risky because they had to, they had to give their water by faith. I mean, it would have been easy to commit to the Lord after fire rains down, right, and he wins. Oh, we're on Yahweh's side. That's cheap commitment. That's just, you know, me too. And it's like, no, are you committed to the Lord when you aren't sure? Because you believe, because you have faith. He wa Elijah wanted them to turn uh, away from being uncommitted spectators to committed participants, and so let's see what happens when they bring their water. Verses 36 to 38. It says, O Lord God of Abraham, I, Elijah speaking, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, prove today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. Prove that I have done all this at your command. O Lord, answer me. Answer me so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have brought them back to yourself. Immediately. The fire of the Lord flashed down from heaven and burned up the young bull, the wood, the stones, and the dust. It even licked up all the water in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell face down on the ground and cried out, The Lord, He is God. Yes, the Lord is God. Whew. I mean, imagine. They, they weren't just watching to see what would happen. They were praying for it to happen. They were so excited when it happened. They fell on their faces praising God. The Lord, he's God. The Lord, he's God. And by requiring them to invest themselves, Elijah made the people of God choose, made them make a commitment. And because they had done it when it required faith, when it cost them something, they were all in. 
They were invested in it when it happened. And they celebrated. So what is commitment? What, what, what is it about commitment that um, is helpful to us? So let me just give you a quick definition of commitment. Commitment is dedication to a particular organization, cause, or belief, and a willingness to get involved. You see, it's one thing to say I'm committed. It's another thing to get involved. And that's what Elijah was doing with them. And when people do that, uh, several things happen. But a couple things I'll share with you. The first one is that people who are committed don't take discouragement seriously. They don't give up. Isn't that what we've discovered at Stonebridge? You know, we hear bad news. Something else changes. It's okay. We're going to make it. We don't give up. Why? Because we're committed. We're invested. We're going to see it through the long haul. Uh, the second thing, people cooperate at a higher level when they share a commitment. Commitment fosters camaraderie, trust, and caring, the stuff a group needs to keep it going for the long run. Commitment, camaraderie, trust, caring, it's what a community is. Commitment builds, creates a community where all of those things take place. And, and we're in it for the long run. And the third one is, the more committed people there are, the more effective they are in influencing others. So uh, I, I just want to say, uh, Wes, Wes is here. He, you've been coming here a long time. And, uh, but I got to tell you, Wes, if it was just you and me here, not that great a worship service. I, I, you know, I mean, <laughs> he'd be like, let's just have lunch. Let's just go. Because it takes all of us, a community, imagine a committed community of faith can, inv can influence so many others. So those are some of the reasons for it. Um, and so from an organizational standpoint, having committed members is a good thing. Being committed to a cause or organization is a powerful thing for individuals. But I just want to tell you, God's not so interested in organizational structure. He isn't inviting and calling us to commit ourselves to him because it ha he has smart goals for us. And, you know, he has a strategic plan that requires committed people. That's not why. He didn't need the water. We need to give the water. God requires commitment because it's good for us. So, what, is it, what does all this water have to do with us? Number three, regularly committing ourselves to God helps us become more godly people. Wow, isn't that interesting? i got to kind of defend that a little bit, I think. Regularly committing ourselves to God helps us become more godly people. Well, we see it. We see it in our own lives, in our own experience, even when it doesn't have to do with God. So Matthew 6.21 says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So this is an interesting thing. Jesus didn't make this up and make it a spiritual thing. This is the way our minds work. When we invest ourselves in something, our hearts and passions go there automatically. For example, when we start thinking about a new car that we want to buy, and we narrow down on a particular car, a particular brand, don't we begin to see that car all over the place? Yeah. That's because we've, we've, in, we've put our treasure there. We've put our thought, our mind, our interest there. And now the rest of us goes and we begin to notice it more. Now, you could pick any example. I'm going to use gamers because we have a lot of board gamers in the church. But it, you could be fishermen or people who work on cars, anything. 
<clears throat> but we have these gamers. So somebody gets involved in games and they buy a board game. What is the first thing they do? Invite people to come over and play it. Hey, come play this. And then if they get, when they, when they pay, play it and they get more interested in it, they Google it. They see who the designer is. And they follow the designer on his or her web page. And, and then, do you know, people go to gaming conventions where they go and hear people talk about playing games. What is that all about? That's about I've invested myself and now I'm really interested in it. I just get more and more interested in the whole thing about it. That's about, that what, that's what, where my treasure is, there my heart will be also. So how do we commit ourselves to God? Um, well, uh, Baptists, I'm going to just say, are pretty good at this. So, uh, you know, if you've ever been a Baptist, I grew up Baptist, and every service, they would sing Just As I Am. And I can't tell you how many verses there are to Just As I Am. It's got to be like a thousand. And, and they sang every one of them. And they don't care how many times you've come forward, they want you to come forward again. And they will sing until you come forward. So, uh, and so people come forward, why? To recommit themselves. Presbyterians aren't so good at that. I don't think we even know just as I am. Um, and we certainly don't come forward uh, except at communion. But um, so uh, how do we recommit ourselves? Well, that's a good question. Uh, and we'll look at that. And I just want to say that hopefully without being manipulative, um, giving money is a commitment that's easy to do. And the reason I bring it up is the text. It says, where my treasure is, there will my heart be also. Okay, we can say treasure is our emotions and our passions and our volunteerism and all of that. But when I say treasure, what do you think? Money. Money's a part of it. Um, if you were to walk out of Walmart, there's always somebody there asking for money, isn't there? Now, if you're not going to give them any money, you go out a different door and you don't make eye contact with them, right? No investment at all. But if you give them a dollar you might stop and talk to them. You might say, hey, tell me about this. And then you might know what the name of the organization is and go back home and Google it to see what they're doing, maybe to check up on the guy, but might also because now you're a little interested. Why? Because you put a dollar in, a dollar. Where my treasure is, that's where my heart will be also. So some of you know that my daughter got married um, in May at a winery in Temecula. So before all of that, we went out looking at wineries and we were checking them out. On the way out, we were like, we're going to check out these wineries. And whichever one meets our needs, that's the one we'll choose. It's up to us. Which was great. So we go out and we look at these wineries. And we found one. Just beautiful. It was gorgeous, beautiful building. The, the, uh, the vines, all of that was great. Uh, it seemed like we liked the wine. So we kind of made the decision. We're going we're gonna to choose this place. And the fellow who was helping us said, you know... Um, if you join the wine club, uh, you get a 15% discount on future events. I'm like, 15% off a wedding? I'm in. And the thing about it is, is that it's free to join. And then every three months, they ship you three bottles of wine for about $100, which is about $75 more than I want to pay for three bottles of wine. <laughs> right? Um, but we're members, and we're going to get that discount. Okay, I tell you that to say what a difference that made. We committed our treasure for $100 a quarter. On our way home, we're literally, Carolyn and I are like, we should invite our friends to our winery. 
our winery. Oh, yeah, and you know what? It's uh, free wine tasting for us, and, uh, and, and, you know, you should come. You should come out. So, you know, it says that uh, regularly committing uh, us, ourselves to God helps us become more godly people. Regularly committing ourselves to the winery made us more whiny people, and uh, <laughs> there's probably a better word for that, but, you know, we were, um, it was like, oh, well, we're cab people. We're, you know, Cabernets, that's what we like. Uh, we might have a Pinot, you know, if it's hot outside. I don't know any of that stuff. But it's like, and then here's the funny part. The wedding's over, right? It was in May. We got our call for our next shipment, and we went out to pick it up. And on the way, Carolyn's like, okay, we're canceling this now. We don't need it anymore. Uh, you know, we aren't going to have another wedding, so we don't need $100 worth of wine. Let's cancel. I'm like, fine, that's good with me. So we're sitting at the counter, and we're talking to people who know our name, to people who are like, what do you think of that one? Have you tried this one? Oh, this one's really good. And Carolyn's like, it's kind of nice to know people who know about wine. <laughs> We're still members. So, <laughs> so why is it important to Elijah? Why does God call us to commit ourselves? Um, what does the water have to do with us? It's because committing ourselves and our treasure help us become more godly people. It makes something in us begins to change. Now, we could talk a lot about that, but I'm going to introduce you to somebody who is a much more enthusiastic person about this, Dave Ramsey. Many of us know Dave Ramsey, and uh, he, we, this church uses the Financial Peace University training. We'll do it in a few months. If you haven't been, I recommend it highly. And Dave Ramsey talks excitedly about giving Here's the thing I want you to know. I'm going to show you a clip from uh, lesson nine out of nine lessons where he talks about giving to the church. The first eight lessons are about getting our own finances in order, figuring out about mortgages and car payments and all those practical things. It, it isn't about from soup to nuts, give more to the church. But Dave does talk about why giving to the church, why God wants us to do that. So let me let you listen to him. So I said, you know, he's energetic, right? Uh, but I love it. His point is giving makes a difference in our lives. So I never told you what finally happened when Elijah called down and God sent fire and it all uh, it took up everything, including the sacrifice, the stones and the water. Only then did Elijah pray for rain. And in verse 45, the end of the chapter, it says, And soon the sky was black with clouds. A heavy wind brought a terrific rainstorm. God comes through. God comes through. It took three years, but he came through for them. And I want to invite you to think about two steps, two next steps we can take based on all of this. The first one is this. Consider a new commitment. Consider a new commitment. Now, I'm not talking about money. I will in a minute. But right now, I'm not talking about money. Uh, we said... Recommitting ourselves is great. Maybe it's deciding we're going to read a little more scripture or pray a little bit more or be kinder out in the community or pay attention to someone we know that needs a little help. But somehow, commit yourself to God in a new way. Now about money, second point, uh, second uh, next step. And I'll preface it by saying it this way. I know a lot of people who love to give an offering every week. 
And they say, and I had somebody afterwards say, putting that check in is my recommitment. I, uh, I, every week I, I know I'm committing myself to God. That's great. Keep doing that. No problem. I'm not like that. Um, I, I'm busy. I'm kind of up here. I'm not sure. I don't have my checkbook with me. Carolyn and I aren't here to talk to each other about it. Uh, so what has helped me is to, is to do it online, to do it regularly. So let me give you our next step. Consider a countercultural online automatic commitment. Here's why I say that. We don't like commitments, right? We're like, automatic means I have to cancel it or it's going to keep happening. Yes, I know. Doesn't that just make you cringe? Ah. But I know every month, oh, I, every time I get my checking statement, yep, I am still committed. God, I'm, I'm invested in that organization. I'm invested in that church. I'm invested in you. And, and it just helps me regularly recommit myself it's intentional it's regular and hopefully it helps me become a more godly person more less selfish more selfless as dave was talking about so i just want to remind us god didn't need the water elijah didn't need the water the people needed to give it. And in our life, in our church, we're, the session didn't get together and said, Neil, would you preach on giving because we need the money? We don't need the money. Well, we need the money, but we don't need the money. We need to give, to commit ourselves, to become the people that God has invited us and called us to be.